Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for June 16th, 2021. Hello to all of you out there. Uh, we've got a, I think, very good discussion coming up here. Uh, many of you may know that Iran will be holding a presidential election on Friday. At least the first round will take place on Friday. Uh, if, by some unlikely event, and we'll talk about why it's unlikely, uh, the winner of the first round doesn't clear 50% of the vote, uh, they will go to a runoff uh, in a couple of weeks. Um, I don't think that's likely to happen. I think this is going to be a first-round knockout uh, for Ebrahim Raisi, who is the current chief justice of Iran and seems to have been, um, or let's say had his path to the presidency um, per paved over for him to make it nice and smooth uh, by Iranian authorities, particularly the Guardian Council, which presumably did so at the behest of Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, although uh, who can say for sure. Uh, I am going to be joined here in a couple of minutes on the Zoom by Seamus Malik Afzali, who is a returning guest. Uh, Seamus was on a few weeks ago. To talk about the Iranian election, we sort of ran through some hypothetical candidates and hypothetical scenarios, but of course... Until the Guardian Council has had its say, uh, it's a bit of a sucker's game to try and predict how any Iranian election is going to go. This one was no different, uh, and even more so, really, even than in past elections, because the Guardian Council seems to have been quite restrictive in which candidates it allowed through its screening process to stay on the ballot. And that's where you get into sort of uh, questions about whether Raisi is being uh, set up for a, you know, an impossible to lose election. Basically, this is being rigged for him to win. Uh, so Seamus will be here. And I, we're also going to be joined. Uh, I'm also going to be joined by Sina Tusi. Uh, Sina is a senior research analyst at the National Iranian American Council, uh, which uh, we will I'll have a link to that their website in the show description. I'll also have a link to Seamus's Substack in the show description, so you can check out both of them. Uh, and uh, he's another uh, really excellent resource for following Iranian politics and sort of the ins and outs and what's being talked about in Iranian media. Uh, so I'm very pleased to have him on as well. Uh, the three of us will kind of discuss Raisi's likely election and what it means for Iran, what this, the way this election has been managed, which feels much different uh, than past Iranian elections, what that means, uh, maybe means for Iran, and what it means for U.S.-Iranian relations. So we'll kind of cover the gamut. Um, uh, as always, if you are a first-time Foreign Exchanges listener, I thank you for checking out the podcast. If you are a returning listener, I thank you even more for coming back, <laughs> for listening to me and then making the choice to come back anyway. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, and uh, you know, if you haven't checked out the newsletter, the Foreign Exchanges newsletter, please do so. It's at fx.substack.com. Uh, you can sign up for our free email list. You'll get tons of great coverage of uh, international affairs, analysis of U.S. foreign policy, uh, and podcasts, more podcast interviews like this one uh, that'll come right to your email inbox. Uh, 
And uh, also, while you're at Substack, please check out Discontents, which is the collective, the media collective of which I am a part, or foreign exchanges, I guess, is a part. Discontents.substack.com. Uh, foreign exchanges is also a part of Opt Out Media, which is building a an app uh, for that'll allow you to kind of cut through some of the mainstream news and get to reporting and analysis that uh, you want to see. Uh, and you can find them on Substack as well, or just uh, find them uh, Google Opt Out Media, and you'll find their Substack. You'll find their uh, they've got a website. Like I said, they're working on an app. I don't think it's 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 still in testing, but uh, should be out one of these days. Uh, so please check out both of those. And with all my plugs out of the way, uh, and one of Seamus's and one of Cena's out of the way, uh, let me get them on Zoom, and we'll start the interview. All right. As I said in the introduction to the show, I'm being joined now by Seamus Malik Opsali, writer, journalist. Uh, you can find his stuff uh, at here at Substack, actually, uh, at malikopsali.substack.com. I'll post a link to that in the show description. Uh, I'm also being joined by Sina Tusi. Uh, senior research analyst at the National Iranian American Council, uh, nyakcouncil.org. Again, uh, we'll have a link in the show description. Uh, we're going to talk about Iran's presidential election. Uh, guys, thank you both for coming on the program. It's great to have you. Thanks for having us, Derek. It's good to be here. Honored to be on again. Uh, yes, Seamus is a returning champion. That's right. I forgot to mention that. He, uh, was on just a few weeks ago, where we talked about the election, but we, uh, I think, jumped the gun to some extent because it was prior to the screening process, and you, you never really know how an Iranian election is going to go until after the Guardian Council, I guess, has weighed in uh, and decided who's allowed to run. Uh, so let's start there. Um, of the, we'll talk about the field kind of in a, in a minute, but uh, in terms of the candidates who were or potential candidates who were not allowed to run. Uh, did it, either of you, were either of you surprised uh, at any of the Guardian Council's choices this year? Sina, why don't you uh, start here and then uh, Seamus can, can, uh, can follow up. Sure. Uh, I was surprised. Um, actually, you know, obviously Iranian elections are not uh, free and fair by the standards of like advanced liberal democracies, but, you know, there has generally been kind of... Um, uh, prominent candidates from the various kind of political camps under the Islamic Republic who have like, who are, who are in the race and the elections are generally competitive and consequential ultimately. And this time around, we saw that all the, the kind of preferred candidates and the, the, the prominent figures that the kind of reformist camp and the moderate camp that were considering and the figures who had registered to run actually people like Ali Larijani, the speaker, the former speaker of parliament, uh, Ali Motahadi, a former uh, parliamentarian, Esok Jahangiri Rouhani's vice president, they were all disqualified. So you really had uh, an unprecedented kind of uh, mass disqualifications of kind of a lot, you know, all the kind of prominent figures from the kind of moderate and reformist camps. And I think, you know, the people who would have been best able to seriously challenged the main conservative who's in the camp, who, you know, who's the front runner right now, Ebrahim Raisi. And the people who did get, you know, uh, confirmed and approved to run, and we can talk more about them, you know, during this conversation, but 
like, you know, Abdul Nasser Hemmati, who's like the main moderate right now in this race. He's a banker. You know, he's a banker who's a so, you know, is a head, former head of the central bank, who's just, you know, kind of a so closely associated with Rouhani and, and kind of Rouhani's economic track record, which is, you know, very, very unpopular in Iran. And I think that's not a coincidence. You know, he's, he was always, you know, and he's not a, a political heavyweight. He doesn't have the kind of gravitas within the system. Uh, even if he did become president, I think really have sway and a lot of influence. And I think, you know, he's, uh, he's gained some momentum. We can talk about it more, but, you know, Raisi for sure is, continues to be the main front runner. And I think, you know, the odds are heavily in, in favor of him winning the election on Friday. Yeah. And I mean, the, I, I, I think, to be fair, I was also surprised by the decision to disqualify Jahangiri and Larijani and all these different people. But after Rafsanjani was disqualified in the last cycle, um, I had a feeling that a lot of there was going to be, I, I think, I'm not sure what the term might be, just a, a, a much lower bar for disqualifying people. What I was actually very surprised by was the disqualification of uh, Saeed Mohammad, um, the IRGC active duty IRGC general who was making this very very big presidential campaign because before that point there was so much there were so many signals that the Guardian Council was going to uh, make exceptions for him to change the rules basically so that he would be able to run. Um, this was indicated by him uh, meeting with Guardian Council officials in a way that forced him to apologize. Um, the Guardian Council made announcements that seemed to be paving the way specifically for him and seemingly no one else in the race. Um, so when he was disqualified, I, I, it, it took me at the very least for a bit of a shock because then it, it made it clear that the race was not going to be um, something competitive around where, where a victory for a conservative was guaranteed, but there would have been more competition surrounding who that conservative would be, um, that it was more going to be just for Raisi. And um, every other conservative candidate is, you know, jostling for the margin of error at this point. That's a really good point. Uh, I think, you know, there is this narrative uh, in the West that, you know, the IRGC, the Iran's kind of Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, that's, you know, part of the state-run military force in Iran, that, you know, they really pull all the levers of power and that they've, you know, been consolidating, you know, power and I think there is a lot of truth to that, but you're absolutely right. You know, in the run-up to this election, there's a number of these IRGC generals, especially Saeed Mohammed, who wanted to, who, you know, had mounted these, you know, very explicit presidential campaigns and registered to run. And a lot of people were saying, you know, including within Iran, that, you know, it was going to be a military president. A lot of people explicitly in Iran said that they wanted the next president to be a military president, which in Iran, you know, in its modern history under the Islamic Republic doesn't really have a precedent. And they were all disqualified as well. All the IRGC generals, including Saeed Mohammed, were also disqualified. But with that said, I think ultimately uh, this Iranian kind of deep state, if you want to call it, or you know, associated with elements of the IRGC and kind of a lot of the hardline institutions of power, they are, I think, really uh, trying. You know, they've done everything they can to kind of engineer this outcome beforehand. I would argue and kind of make you know create a stage where Raisi who is their preferred candidate right now to have the best uh, chance of winning this election. One of the, I, I felt like th there was more outcry than usual. There's always some outcry at the Guardian Council when it 
you know, does what it does prior to, to an Iranian election. And uh, there's always some outcry over candidates who get rejected in parliamentary elections as well as presidential elections. And there's always some suggestion that, uh, you know, the, the council is overstepping itself, that it's uh, rejecting people for ideological reasons instead of, you know, sticking to the mandate of making sure everybody's just kind of basically on the same page with the revolution and doesn't have any uh, major skeletons in their closet. Um, I, I felt like there was maybe more outcry than usual last year after the, the Guardian Council weeded out just a huge number of people from the parliamentary election. And it seemed to be quite ideologically based to kind of skew that that election uh, for the conservatives. Um, so I, and I don't know if you guys felt the same way about that. Um, but I think that may have laid some of the groundwork for what we saw here. The one candidate, and you know, you mentioned him, um, who I was, I was sort of surprised that he, he registered in the first place. Um, but his exclusion, I took as a surprise was Ali Larajani. Um, and, and I wonder if, I know the, the council doesn't explain itself. It doesn't really have to explain itself. But is there any um, sense in, you know, that you've seen in, in Iranian media or kind of, uh, you know, that's been talked about as as the reason why Larajani, whose credentials would seemingly be, you know, kind of unimpeachable, why he was um, rejected other than, you know, sort of we're arranging this election for Raisi, which you can't really say out loud. There has to be some other rationale that that you know, for, for excluding him, I think. Um, I, yeah, I could take an attempt at answering that, Derek. Um, I think a, a number of factors are really important with the Guardian Council's uh, disqualifications. But I mean, on Ali Roy Johnny, you're right. I mean, that was definitely the most surprising disqualification. And it did create a huge controversy inside Iran. And the Guardian Council, like you said, they are not, they don't publicly say why they disqualify a certain candidate. And, you know, Laurie Johnny has been in a public spat with them, actually, including even just yesterday. And I think even today, you know, call, you know, calling on them to kind of explain why he was disqualified. And it actually, the context is very interesting because you're even seeing kind of uh, a potential rift between Khamenei, the Supreme Leader, and the Guardian Council even, and, you know, perhaps some of these other hardline institutions of power where you saw that after the the Guardian Council a couple of weeks ago, you know, ha, you know, disqualified in mass all these people that Khamenei initially came out and supported it. But then you had Ali Lardi, Johnny's brother, who's a prominent cleric himself, who's on the Guardian Council himself. He came out and publicly opposed, you know, these disqualifications, said they were indefensible and said that security forces intervened in the decision making of the Guardian Council. And then you had about a week later, Khamenei also come out and also criticize the Guardian Council now after the fact and say that, you know, some of these people who were disqualified, Khamenei said that they were persecuted and they were oppressed and they have to be compensated for. And that, you know, their reputations were tarnished. And he was clearly talking about, you know, the Lari Johnny, you know, the Lari Johnny family and, you know, specifically Ali Lari Johnny. And, you know, their family is a very influential kind of powerful political family. And so you've seen the seeming rift, but then you saw the Guardian Council issue a statement and say that after Khamenei's remarks, criticizing them for kind of uh, disqualifying, you know, disqualifying Lari Jani. And they said that uh, they stood by the disqualification, disqualification. They said that 
or Khamenei had actually said that there was false information used in kind of judging the qualifications of these candidates. And the Guardian Council said that, yeah, there might have been some false information, but that that wasn't the reason why we disqualified these people. So they kind of stood by their decision and and a kind of, you know, public defiance of, you know, you know, some people thought that, you know, the Guardian Council might walk it back, but nothing changed. And, you know, I've seen some, you know, analysis and commentary out of Iran that some people are saying that, you know, and I don't necessarily know how much I buy into this, but that, you know, some people are arguing we're moving into the, these are the first stages of maybe the post-Khamenei era where, you know, Khamenei is 82 years old, you know, secession has, is a big part of this election as well. And, you know, a lot of people speculate that Raisi is being groomed to succeed Khamenei. And, you know, he's 82 years old and you have these hardliners who've been so empowered under U.S. pressure, which I think we should definitely talk about, like the role of American sanctions and pressure in creating this political situation in Iran. But, you know, they're really, you know, really trying to consolidate total power and really kick, you know, moderates and reformists out of the system, from what I see. And I think, uh, you know, Khamenei might not be part and parcel with with all of their plans necessarily. And I think, you know, this this feud, this issue, the Guardian Council has been very fascinating how it's played out. And additionally, just to add some context to this, um, the disqualification of Ali Larijani is different, I think, than the disqualification of Ahmadinejad who managed to um, completely reverse his position to become one of Iran's most popular politicians. And there was a genuine concern that he would be a competitor as a front runner to an IEC if he would be allowed to run, which he wasn't going to be. Um, Lari Johnny, I mean, his polling is, is abysmal, at least beforehand. Um, it, it hovered somewhere between uh, four and 7%. And the it had uh, in the East Ball polls um, the highest percentage of people who said um, they would never vote for him. Um, this was really a concern about uh, bolstering turnout. And without Larry Johnny in the race, there's even more of this sense that, okay, even the, we, there's, there doesn't seem to be much of a choice in this respect, if not even someone who is part of such a powerful family is not an available choice uh, as a politician to vote for. So let's talk about who did get in, um, except for Raisi. I want to save him for his own um, own topic in a minute, because, I, you know, I think he uh, warrants it. Um, Seamus, why don't you start, you know, going through, I think, Sina, you, you've already mentioned the fact that uh, there was a lot of speculation heading into this race, that it was going to be kind of the military election that the Iranian people were, you know, ready for a, a military president, uh, so to speak. And um, they're not seemingly going to get one because none of the military candidates have been, uh, well, except maybe for Mohsen Rezaei, who's sort of ex-IRGC guy. Um, and and a lot of them, you know, m- you know, maybe cleared, you know, in a sense, were cleared out of the way to, to keep them from interfering with Raisi, but who, who are these guys and, and do any of them sort of stick out for either of you as a, uh, a potential dark horse or even kind of the main, um, you know, rival to Raisi such as it is. Uh, I think Abdel Nasser Hamati is probably the obvious uh, pick at this point, but, but what do you guys make of this field now as it stands? 
I, I think Sina will disagree with me on this, um, but I don't think any of the other candidates have any sort of chance to um, <laughs> pull. Like, like the idea, the idea that's been expressed is that obviously none of these candidates are going to beat um, what I see in the first round. What the strategy is being discussed is that maybe um, they can pull Raisi's vote count ch- down just enough to under 50%, which will force it to go a second round, in which case they could then beat them. Um, when we discussed the, the other candidates in this race, um, in 2017, 2013, there were multiple different candidates who were polling generally the same, and then a front runner emerged. But even so, they were polling at around maybe like 15, 20, 10%. Um, Every single other candidate in this race, except for Raisi, by the last polling, is polling at the very highest at 8%. Raisi is polling at uh, 61%. And the undecided vote is, there's no way to make it up, even if any of the other candidates were able to take up all of that. Um, Hemati has been talking about, um, like he's getting a lot of traction. Um, I I, I spoke to um, a Shahrukh reporter, about this and he, he tried to temper it um, by saying that he's getting traction in the same way that like Andrew Yang got traction in the Democratic primaries. It, it's basically, it, it, he's an interesting candidate um, because of his position and the um, things that he's trying to defend in his record. But he's gone from maybe like 1% to 4% in the polls. Um, the rise is not really uh, anything that is, um, uh, I, I think, measurable in a way that would threaten Raisi. And every other candidate is just not even, I, I think, worth discussing in a way that talks about their viability of winning uh, in that respect. Yeah, I, I would actually agree with you, Seamus, that I think... Uh you know, this is Raisi's race to lose. And even before these disqualifications, you know, the kind of conservative camp in Iran, it was very well positioned for this, to win this race. Um, uh, I think, you know, the, the past several years of America's maximum pressure campaign against Iran and these very, very severe economic sanctions that, you know, they debilitated Rouhani and his allies, you know, the, the incumbent moderate president, Hassan Rouhani, where, you know, Rouhani had invested all of his political capital in negotiating the nuclear deal in 2015 and promising these economic dividends from it. And, you know, that was never able to be delivered. And Trump, by, you know, reneging on the deal and imposing these severe economic sanctions, you know, Rouhani was, was left with nothing and really debilitated. And the hardline forces were validated in all their kind of uh, distrust of the U.S. and warnings about the JCPOA and opposition to the JCPOA. And you, and, you know, it's really been amazing, actually, to see where in the past several years, a lot of these conservative outlets in Iran, even state television, which is largely dominated by conservatives, they spend far more time uh, attacking Rouhani and his administration over the kind of econ- economic situation in Iran, kind of blaming them for the economic situation, as opposed to the role of U.S. sanctions and and Trump. You know, it's very fascinating. They Trump, you know, I would argue was actually, you know, the be, you know, provided a historic opportunity for Iranian hardliners to really consolidate power at this critical juncture in Iran's modern history. And you've seen that play out in these televised debates that have happened in the past, uh, like, two weeks, where it was kind of, you know, the five against one, really. I mean, you have these two kind of more moderate reformist candidates, but Ham Mati, the cent- former central bank governor, is the, is the more prominent of those two. 
And in these debates, you saw all of them just attack Rouhani, attack Rouhani's policies, attack Hemmati, say not a word about U.S. sanctions, as if you know Iran wasn't just under this historically unprecedented economic siege that you know debilitated, you know, prevented it from exporting any oil. You know, part, you know, the vast majority of its oil exports were down. Its international trade, its access to foreign currency, um, and that wasn't you know these hardliners. They didn't even mention that. So I think, you know, heading into this election, yeah, there's a lot of public disillusionment, a lot of public discontent that has built built over the past several years um, with, you know, people disillusioned over Rouhani and his inability to deliver on his promises, um, the deteriorating economic situation and, you know, increased repression and a number of very brutal crackdowns from the governments in recent years, including uh, in November 2019, where there was after the price of gasoline was abruptly increased that. Uh, there was, you know, widespread protests across the country and a, and a brutal uh, government crackdown that led to about 300 people dying, according to Amnesty International. So, you know, a lot of people are actively saying they won't vote and they're going to boycott the elections. And this ultimately does play into the hands of the hard, you know, the kind of conservatives in this race and Ray EC, and they're counting on low turnout. I think one reason we saw these these big disqualifications and Ali Larijani, yes, you know, he he didn't, you know, a lot of people have always, you know, especially among reformists, have not liked him. But I think given his political stature and his his connections and kind of even the campaign that he was just starting after he registered, he could have, I think, posed a serious challenge to race here, a more serious one than we're seeing now with him, Matthew. But they didn't want to risk that. I don't think they, you know, the Guardian Council with these disqualifications, it, it kind of shows a belief that they don't want a high turnout. And you've even seen Iranian you know, the Guardian Council spokesman saying a high turnout is not necessary, which is very unlike what Islamic Republic officials have said in the past about elections. I think they just they want to minimize any chance that uh, Ibrahim Raisi could win this election. Or could lose this election, I, I mean. All right. Well, so let's let's talk about Raisi then. Um, uh, you know, Sina, maybe you could go start, you know, start us off here and go into his uh, record. I think he's, you know, most recently known for um, running against Rouhani in 2017 and and getting, I think, somewhat embarrassed. Uh, you know, beaten pretty badly. Um, he's been serving as chief justice, which is, uh, you know, an ex- a very powerful position in Iran um, since then. Uh, but he's got a, a past and, and it's not a, a very pretty one necessarily. Um, talk a little bit about his history and, and who this person is uh, kind of bringing us up to the, the election. Yeah, sure. So like you said, yeah, he ran against Rouhani in the 2017 presidential election when Rouhani was seeking re-election and he lost with about, he got almost 16 million votes and Rouhani got almost 20 Four million votes. So it was a it was a big margin, but Rouhani still. I mean, Raisi still got a substantial amount of votes, and he does have a base in the country. But his um his background is in Iran's judicial system. So going back to the early years after the Iranian uh, revolution, he was I believe he was twenty years old when he got his first kind of judicial post in the country, and he kind of worked his way up the ranks over the years, and you know being the kind of uh, attorney general of like various cities the south's done in iran like the chief prosecutor and there's a number of you know human rights abuses in iran that are attached to him pretty closely including you know most infamously and this came up in the 2017 presidential election when 
So in 1988, at the tail end of the Iran-Iraq war, you had the Islamic Republic governments, you know, engage in a mass execution of a lot of kind of opponents of the Islamic Republic, like a lot of dissidents, uh, especially from the Mujahideen Khal and, you know, other kind of uh, groups. And, you know, it, you know, it wasn't like, you know, at the time there was armed opposition to the Islamic Republic. You know, some of the MEK, the Mujahideen Khal, this opposition group were fighting with Saddam Hussein, but many of these people are executed or belong to, sort of, to leftist groups or just political dissidents, you know, ex executed really for their beliefs. So in the 2017 election, it emerged, there was this tape that was leaked. And this tape featured the, this Ayatollah, Ayatollah Hussein Ali Montaziri. And Hossein Montaziri, he was this designated successor of Ayatollah Khomeini, who founded the Islamic Republic. He was his designated successor during the 1980s, a, a post which he eventually lost because of actually, you know, what I'm about to explain largely. So this tape saw Montaziri talking to four people. And these are four people from Iran's judiciary. Uh, one of them was a 28-year-old Ibrahim Raisi. And he was talking to them about these, these executions that were happening. And he was saying, you know, you know, that they are kind of, he was reprimanding them, severely reprimanding them for kind of uh, going through with these executions and calling them, you know, like the criminals of history. And they're going to be condemned by history. And it was really, you know, you know, Montaziri, you know, very sharply, you know, obviously opposed these executions. And he ultimately had a falling out with the system and he lost his, status as the designated successor to Khomeini. And so, you know, this is kind of, you know, the background that Raisi comes from. And, you know, over the years, he's worked his way up the kind of uh, judicial, the ranks of Iran's judiciary. He it was also a student of Khamenei, you know, Ayatollah Khamenei, Iran's current supreme leader for many years, like a clerical student of Khamenei. So he's close with Khamenei. He, um, he was also the head of Iran's largest religious foundation, uh, I believe from, I think it was like 2014 to 2016, something like that. Uh, and this is, it's called Asana Rotser Razavi, and it's basically the religious foundation that runs kind of one of the biggest religious shrines in northeastern Iran and Mashhad, the Imam Reza Shrine. And then in 2019, uh, if I'm not mistaken, in March of 2019, he was appointed by Khamenei after he lost the 2017 election. In March of 2019, he was appointed by Khamenei as the head of the judiciary, like you said, like the chief justice of Iran, which is one of the three branches of the Iranian government is the judiciary. And he, you know, he and the judiciary, you know, in Iran is, is you know, plays a large role in kind of a lot of the human rights abuses that we see that happen in Iran. So this is kind of, you know, the background he brings, you know, if he wins this race, you know, he's not a kind of a, executive you know he's not kind of a um, manager of like um that would kind of you think would be fit for this role of presidency he comes from the judiciary and the judicial world and kind of being a judge and um yeah that's so going in that's his background Seamus I wonder um you know you you could uh, comment on this I mean you've talked about the polling and Raisi's polling very well obviously in a field of nobody's basically uh he's the one name that that stands out um you know he didn't he did okay in 2017 i think uh you know would have uh, obviously there was at one point there was you know some thinking that he could uh unseat rohani which would have been uh you know an upset given that no 
uh, Iranian president since uh, Khamenei himself was elected uh, has lost re-election. Um, but um, I, I, I wonder, you know, about uh, his actual level of popularity, if you could sort of remove him from uh, this field and kind of put him in, you know, alongside some people who were actually fairly well known and, and regarded. Um, uh, it seems to me that and I'm, I'm certainly willing to, you know, entertain or consider the possibility that his popularity has grown in the last four years as Rouhani's kind of floundered and the economy has struggled. Maybe, you know, you have some effect, you know, with people kind of looking back and thinking, geez, I should have voted for the other guy. Um, but at the same time, the fact that that the authorities went to the extent of sort of clearing the field for his election strikes me as a signal that they themselves, like the, you know, the Guardian Council and, the, you know, the people who are uh, pushing for Raisi's election didn't think that he was a particularly strong candidate. What what what's your sense of, of that? No, I, I think that assumption is generally correct. Um, Raisi has has grown in his popularity as there has been a kind of concerted media campaign to portray him as someone who has been uh, prosecuting corruption and um, reforming the judiciary in some way. Um, but there was polling, however not extensively done, that showed that there were other candidates like Ahmadinejad who would have been able to, uh, if not beat Raisi, then to certainly um, make things more difficult for him. Um, there really is not a conservative opposition candidate to Raisi's conservative record. Um, not that Darijani is gone, though I think he's more of a moderate now. Um, because that, because having to defend his record against someone who is ideolog more ideologically aligned with him um, would be difficult. And you see the difficulty because Emmati, who is extraordinarily unpopular, um, is the face of an administration, even though he's been dismissed, that is historically unpopular. Um, Raisi has been so threatened by his criticism on the debate stage that he demanded airtime by state TV outside of the debate to respond to his accusations. Um, he, he even though he has this kind of very, very uh, high polling lead, he understands that it's a bit tenuous that if in in the sense that if there were more candidates in the race that would be better able to articulate in um a criticism of him that his polling league would not would not be this um not be this strong um it would basically be like like if we're going back to like 2008 in the democratic primaries if every single other person was disqualified except for let's say john edwards and mike Ravel. Um, you could say that John Edwards was an okay candidate, um, especially against someone like Gravel. But when you've taken out everybody else out of the, you know, the running, it's not really a, a real lead in that sense because you've made the playing field um, so uh, plentiful to this person. Are you both? sort of on the of the view that that Ricey is being groomed to succeed Khamenei. I mean, I, I feel like that's fairly obvious, although I, I laugh sometimes when uh, American commentators talk about 
the Iranian succession process, like for Supreme Leader. This is an office that didn't exist before 1979 and has changed hands exactly once. So it's not like there's a lot of precedent that you can kind of read the tea leaves and try to figure out what's going on. But uh, it it feels like uh, he is being prepared for that. And in a sense, uh, you know, moving from chief justice to president now, likely moving from chief justice to president um, is not so much a step up as it is kind of trying to erase erase the blemish on his record from having lost uh, in 2017. On the other hand, I saw this on Twitter and I can't remember who who tweeted it, but it was it seemed way too clever to me uh, to be real. But it was funny anyway. Uh, there was somebody it was somebody made an argument that like no Iranian president <laughs> finishes his term more popular than he was when he started. And so maybe this is an effort to kind of put Raisi out there and discredit him and kind of, uh, you know, wipe out his candidacy. But I, you know, again, I think that's a little too clever, uh, but it is kind of funny to consider uh, where, where are you on the, the succession process? Cause uh, you know, as you said, as Cena said earlier, uh, how many is 82, he's a cancer survivor. So somebody is going to have to uh, be the guy at some point. And, uh, you know, it seems like Raisi is it, but I, I'd like your takes on that. Uh, I would, I would say yes, but only insofar as I literally cannot think of anyone else who <laughs> could be a potential candidate. I it's, it's not strong. Um, because again, as you said, the only precedent that we have is the last election, which was the only election, and that was back in '89. Um, but from the criteria that they eventually settled on to elect Khamenei from president to supreme leader, um, was the fact that Khamenei was was popular, and he was, um, that he was known by the people, and he was, he was the president. Um, because they originally had wanted someone like Olbe Ghani, who was a, um, he was a scholar, he was very learned, he had the level of religious knowledge that Khomeini had. But the issue was, is that nobody knew who Olbe Ghani was, um, and he was extremely elderly, he had been born in 1899, um, so they had to choose someone different. Um, Ibrahim Arisi is, is younger, obviously he was born in 1960, um, He's obviously he's a uh, kid. He's 60. <laughs> yeah, but uh, he, he's but he, he if he becomes president, he will become more known by the people. And if he has uh, a mandate that is far higher than the what is it, like 37 percent of the vote that he had in 2017, then perhaps the assembly of experts could argue that he was popular and that the people would accept him as supreme leader. Um, there have been like other candidates that have been floated and suggested um, by various media outlets, but either they are scholars who are very high up, um, but they fall into the same problems that Old Bay might have had, or they're just people who um, would never in a million years become supreme leader like Rouhani or Sadaka Larijani. Um, I think somebody even said that um, Hassan Khomeini could be supreme leader, but that's not, that's not gonna happen. Um, that is, again, because he is the only person I think that could feasibly be the next Supreme Leader, they are trying to clear the field and make it so he can fit all of the criteria, at least as much as it can, that Khamenei had before he was elected Supreme Leader. Yeah, I mean, I would echo a lot of that. I think um, he is, you know, there's definitely 
certain centers of power in Iran that have really kind of, you know, propped up Raisi. And I think, you know, the succession is a big part of that. And, but I think ultimately it is a lot of speculation. I mean, a lot of it depends on Iran's domestic situation when, when Khamenei passes away. And ultimately it's, there's this, actually this, this, this body that elects the Supreme Leader is called the Assembly of Experts. And it's comprised of, you know, clerics and it's, it's elected by the, by the people, but, you know, obviously the guardian council vets who can run, but that, that clerical body, the assembly of experts, it actually, in the last election for the, it's elected, I believe every 10 years. Uh, and it was, you know, it's, it is largely dominated by conservatives. So I think, yeah, a lot of this, you know, when it comes to how many succession, I think it depends on the domestic balance of power and where all the different factions stand uh, with respect to each other. And I think, you know, like Hemati and Rouhani and figures like Seamus uh, mentioned, like Hassan Khomeini, or, you know, they belong to like kind of, they're closely aligned largely, you know, as part of like one, you know, we can kind of simplify and say as part of like one political camp in an overarching way in Iran. And you have the kind of more conservative kind of center of power. And right now they're best positioned to have their, you know, to really heavily influence and kind of uh, directly kind of decide arguably like who the next Supreme leader will be, but we'll have to see how it plays out ultimately over the next uh, several years. If you know, and I think Ray Isi, you know, he would, if, you know, he would be a, a candidate, I think, you know, for the conservative camp, but you never know. I mean, there's been talk in Iran over the years of making the, the, the post of Supreme leader kind of a, a council composed of several figures or making it more of like a religious leader. So I, you know, like Rafsanjani, for example, the late Hashimi Rafsanjani was a former kind of moderate, pragmatic president, closely allied with Rouhani. He, he publicly, you know, talked about these kind of things, like making the making the position a, a council. And I think when it comes to also, because a lot of people are also saying that you know Raisi, like you know, if he becomes president, he gets like a pub, you know, this kind of public mandate and kind of this executive experience, and that'll help him be, you know, kind of succeed Khamenei. But actually. And, you know, you know, they say like Khamenei was president in the 80s. But I think one important thing that, that is often missed in this discussion is that, you know, during the 80s, Iran was actually a, a premiership. And the prime minister were, who ran the government and the equivalent to kind of the presidency today. And, you know, that was Mir Hussein Mousavi, you know, the, the erstwhile Green Movement leader and 2009 presidential candidate who's been under house arrest since 2011. And, you know, Khamenei, when he was president in the 80s, that wasn't... Um, you know, that wasn't the kind of same post it is today. So it might not be necessary, you know, for the Supreme Leader to, you know, have this post of presidency. So it could be someone else. It could be someone unexpected, someone we don't know about. Um, I think a lot could happen. But I think we can say, you know, confidently that, you know, many centers of power with Iran, given Raisi's rise and his, his pedigree and kind of the all the efforts being uh, expend expended to kind of you know make him president right now that you know powerful forces in Iran want you know have high hopes for him and I think you know want him to succeed Khamenei. What is your uh, for both of you? What is your sense of the implications that this election may have for the Islamic Republic? And I'm thinking specifically of the Republic part of that construct. Um, it does feel like, and you know, we've sort of talked about it here. It feels like there's a this this election represents a movement from elections that were 
bounded off certainly you know there were there were guardrails preventing uh you know certain you know keeping things within a certain kind of range of of uh, uh candidates but they were still competitive within that framework and there was still uh some consequence to the vote you could sort of uh, kind of determine where the Iranian public stood you know in terms of uh you know what it wanted uh by the outcome of those votes um it feels like there's a move here to uh, a much more kind of petro-state sham election type of thing where it's it's sort of arranged really arranged beforehand not just kind of uh, bounded but but completely arranged for a single candidate there are a lot of you know there's been a lot of talk about boycotts uh turnout is likely to be quite low by iranian standards Sina, you talked about the the sort of rhetoric now is is we don't really need high turnout which is a big uh change from past elections when turnout has been almost as important as the the outcome it seems like to iranian leaders um and i wonder whether that's that represents an ideological shift or if it's sort of a way to set expectations and kind of, you know, when the, the low turnout comes in, you can say it doesn't matter. You know, we've, we've sort of established this. But I, I, you know, so if this election feels like it's going to be different and it feels like that may have some ramifications, uh, what are your sort of thoughts on this? Uh, if I, yeah, if I could just start, I would. I mean, I think, you know, Iran is headed towards the more kind of authoritarian, uh, insular direction, which is a, a, a fruit of maximum, you know, America's maximum pressure policy again. I think, um, you know, if, 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 for example, you know, the JC, if America stayed in the JCPOA and Iran had like 5 to 10% economic growth from 2015 onwards, as was projected, and... Um, you know, I think the fortunes of the moderate political camp in Iran right now would be very different as opposed to, you know, presiding over this economy that's in tatters and these hardliners who've been empowered. But when it comes to the, uh, you know, a lot of people right now in Iran are talking about the Republican elements of the Islamic Republic kind of decaying and withering away. And this really goes back to like one of the main fault lines in Iranian politics that has existed largely since the 1990s. Which, you know, the Islamic Republic in its, in, in its kind of inception and the way it was kind of conceived by Ayatollah Khomeini and its other founders was kind of a, a converging of, you know, these kind of indigenous Shia political philosophies that kind of Khomeini and others kind of promoted and for like kind of Shia governance. And also, you know, kind of Western kind of uh, Republican elements and so we've seen that you know in the islamic republic system you've had you have like a parliament you have a presidency you have a premiership um these various kind of elected bodies uh a written constitution but you also have these kind of theocratic religious bodies and these theocratic bodies often you know they have a dominance over the kind of elected uh republican bodies you know with a guardian council which is composed of you know six clerics and six six jurists they kind of vet all legislation that's passed by the parliament, and they also, you know, vet candidates who are seeking office. Obviously, the supreme leader is kind of the ultimate decision maker, or has the ultimate say in a lot of high-level decisions. And we, you know, with this election, it is an inflection point, I would argue, where again, you've seen in the past the election, the breadth of candidates allowed, 
the kind of various perspectives from even within the Islamic Republic that were allowed, it was wider. You know, it was all ultimately still narrow within the confines of the Islamic Republic. You know, we, we didn't have like leftist kind of uh, socialist candidates who don't who oppose like theocracy. They were never obviously able to run in Islamic Republic's elections. But within the spectrum of acceptable politics, there was a wider range, in, you know, with this election, which is, you know, it's unprecedented for this reason. And, and what a lot of people, you know, are saying in Iran right now, including figures like, you know, former President Mohammad Khatami, you know, the Green Movement leaders who are under house arrest, like Mehdi Karoubi yesterday released a statement that, you know, what's left of, you know, the way they frame it, like Mehdi Karoubi, the former the Green Movement leader, he framed it as like what's left of the Republican elements of the system are, you know, at risk of being destroyed. And people need to to go out and vote and turn out and prevent, you know, these hardliners and conservatives from really kind of enacting their plans and kind of taking Iran in this trajectory of where the Islamic Republic loses this Republican aspect of its system and becomes, you know, more symbolic and superficial and like a sham than it ever was. And it really is just this, this small minority of people, even within the system, were really running everything and, and deciding elections. And I think that's the, so Iran is, is really at a critical juncture in its contemporary history right now. And I think this election will shape a lot of Iran's uh, future political trajectory in a very decisive way. Yeah, I have nothing to add to that. That pretty much sums up everything that then needs to be said about that. Have you? Have I? <laughs> yes, it is depressing. Well, uh, we can. Uh, this this show usually ends on depressing notes, but we'll keep going here because we can get even more depressing and talk about uh, Iranian U.S. relations. Oh, uh, yeah, we can take it even down down a little bit further. Uh, <laughs> take the mood down. But I, I wanted to ask before we get broach that subject. Uh, you know, you both follow. Uh, Iranian media and Iranian politics, and and you know there have been two debates that that have taken place in this election. Has anything, you know, apart from the things that we've talked about so far, has anything kind of struck you about the tenor of the the media coverage or the tenor of uh, you know kind of the dynamics that that you've seen in the debates or anything that's been said um, that's really kind of hit you as a, a you know something that. Um, is interesting or unusual or, or uh, you know, worth kind of noting. I, I hate to sound like um, someone who cares about like um, like like tenor or mood, um, but the debates in in this cycle in particular have been truly awful in a way that there is virtually no policy being discussed. Um, there is just a lot of, um, of, of name calling and um, trying to get out uh, slogans and arguing with one another. Um, Mohsen Razai uh, threatened to arrest um, Hamati on the debate stage. He said that he was going to uh, appoint people who would uh, send this man to court. And then Hamati had to both defend Razai, who is the IRGC commander in chief during the Iran Iraq war. But then also say that he hopes that he isn't arrested. Um, it was an ex- it's an extremely strange, uh, very petty. Um, it, there is no sense of actual competition um, in that sense because everyone is trying to every conservative is trying not to attack Raisi, and everybody is also ganging up on Hemeti. Um, with increasingly more uh, severe criticisms. Um, 
it's, I think, striking as someone who remembers the debates in 2009 um, when Ahmadinejad um, did, did a pretty infamous performance where he was very dismissive and very argumentative. Um, but a comparison, um, Mehdi Karoubi and Mirhussein Mousavi were very composed, they were very measured, they had extensive notes with them and delivered their arguments in very clear uh, mannerisms. Um, the difference between how things have deteriorated from then to now, um, I think is also emblematic of how um, the election process has deteriorated, where there is less and less sense that there is an actual election, a competitive election taking place. Yeah, and I would add that it's been fascinating, you know, even during these de these debates, which like Seamus said, I mean, it, it's been kind of like, a, you know, widely mocked, uh, not really fostering a debate. It's like the format is like the moderator would take, you know, he would have all these fish bowls around him and he would take out like questions, you know, at random and like take out another from another fishbowl, he'd take out like the names of the candidates at random. And then he would just ask each one like a, a fair, you know, they were fairly like technical questions, not really, again, aimed at kind of evoking a debate on kind of big policy differences. And, you know, the candidates would have like a few minutes to answer and then their mic would get cut off. So you had all these like awkward moments consistently where they would keep talking. And you can hear them talking when the microphone cuts off, just like the echo of their voice in the background. And then, so you you actually had a lot, even you know, some of the conservative candidates criticized the format of the of the the debates done by state television. And again, you know, the kind of the government run kind of, it's, you know, state television. It, it's very much close with the conservatives. And I think you know, this debate wasn't really you know, it didn't like Seamus actually said in the 2009 presidential elections, where you saw some of these debates really generate public excitement, public enthusiasm, you know, allow for rigorous debate. This, these, this kind of debate format did not do that. I don't, I don't think that's a, you know, that, that was intentional, I would say. And so you saw some of these conservatives this time around, like Saeed Jalili, Iran's former chief nuclear negotiator under Ahmadinejad, who's also running. He, I think it was in what, yeah, the second debate, he really strongly criticized uh, state TV as well and said that, you know, this format has to change. This is not, we're not actually doing anything. And another thing actually that stood out for me from these debates, and I had mentioned earlier, you know, the most important thing I think with these debates is kind of how conservatives just, just blamed everything on Rouhani and his administration and nothing on Trump and his sanctions and unprecedented, you know, outside economic pressure in recent years, which is fascinating. And it shows how much these, the hardliners from Iran benefited from Trump. Um, but also we saw that in the most recent debate last Saturday, there was a difference between Jalili uh, and Raisi on foreign policy, actually, where Raisi came out and he, he more or less expressed support for the nuclear deal and returning to the nuclear deal. And also on this very, this kind of contentious legislation in Iran that has yet to be passed, but it's, it's about reforming Iran's banking sector and kind of getting Iran to abide by kind of international standards. And conservatives in Iran have been very opposed to that. And Rouhani tried to get that passed. So on both of these issues, this banking legislation and the, the nuclear deal, Raisi said, you know, if it's in Iran's national interests, he would pursue these. And then Jalili, who's, you know, one of the most outspoken kind of opponents of both the banking legislation of the JCPOA, 
he pushed back against Raisi like during that debate and said that you know he he opposes these things and he would you know he consent he considers them against Iran's national interest. So you know that kind of back and forth was was interesting. And I think Raisi he is a you know he's heavily aligned with that kind of hardline camp and that anti diplomacy you know uh, worldview in Iran. But it's you know. In this election, he is striking a more pragmatic tone, which is interesting, and I think testament to the fact that, you know, a lot of these decisions are ultimately systemic decisions. You know, going back into the nuclear deal, you know, approved at the highest level by Khamenei and the Supreme National Security Council, and you know, Raisi is going to see those those through. But I think you know it remains to be seen how his presidency, if he does win, you know, will impact Iran's broader foreign policy, if the potential for follow-on negotiations after a return to the nuclear deal. I think you know, it's going to get much more difficult, you know, if he brings, you know, if his team, his captain is comprised of all these hardliners. That, I mean, that gets into sort of, you know, where I was going to kind of close this out, but maybe we could could drill a little more into that. I mean, Sini, you've talked about the the role that maximum pressure played in getting us to this point, getting us to the point where, um, you know, there is little space for um, even moderates in, in Iranian politics. Rouhani has been so discredited at this point um, by virtue of the fact that, that the U S has shut down any Avenue to economic growth. Um, Raisi, as you say, is not, you know, he's not going to interfere with kind of rejoining the nuclear deal. It's not really his place to do that. It's, you know, that's a decision for how many, and he seems to have, uh, you know, he seems to be on board with at least, uh, you know, seeing where the the current talks go, if nothing else. Um, but Iranian presidents do influence Iranian foreign policy. Ahmadinejad, for example, you know, was uh, you can see I mean, you can see the difference between, you know, the ability to kind of interact or the, for the United States and Iran to interact under Ahmadinejad versus uh, under uh, Rouhani is, is quite stark. So presidents do have a role here. Um, you know, let's assuming that Raisi wins, uh, you know, let's say that uh, the Biden administration and the Iranian government managed to come to some agreement on restoring the, the 2015 deal. Uh, what effect do you envision that having on U.S.-Iranian relations? On, on one level, you know, it seems like you know, it restores things to a to a pre-Trump status quo in which there was some engagement. It was slow, obviously, and and uh, you know you're trying to build from nothing, so it was it was going to take a while. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I, I, I it feels like uh, Trump kind of said the quiet part out loud, which is even if you come to a deal with the United States, you can't rely on that deal sticking because the next Republican or the next kind of, you know, uh, really hardline anti-Iran president the United States has will just tear it all back down to, to the nubbins and uh, start from scratch. So what what hope is there, I guess, is my question for some improvement in the U.S.-Iranian relationship, even under the the sort of supposition that the nuclear deal gets restored, it feels like there there's a lot of obstacles now that that maybe didn't exist uh, before. Well, I, you know, if the nuclear deal, if the re, if the return to the nuclear deal happens, and these negotiations that are ongoing in Vienna, 
are successfully concluded before kind of if Racy wins the election, if and before he kind of uh, is inaugurated in August, um, you know, Racy is going to be positioned to, you know, be a, you know, deliver a lot of economic uh, dividends for the Iranian people, up for, you know, in his first few years in office. You know, if, if, if the U.S. goes back into the nuclear deal, lifts these sanctions, you know, the, the kind of Iran's going to be able to oil export its oil again, you know, engage in international commerce. And, you know, that will uh, improve its economy. The Iranian people will feel that. Um, so, you know, they want that. And I think, uh, I think you know, per, you know, one reason these negotiations have kind of dragged on, I think not as, at least, you know, why we didn't like reach a deal perhaps in like April or May is because they wanted to, you know, I think some of these power centers in Iran wanted, uh, they didn't want it to impact the election and help the moderates. And they ultimately wanted to help, you know, someone like Raisi when he becomes president. Um, so I think, so the JCPOA will, will help him, you know, and I think, you know, the Iranian system at large has made clear that, you know, it wants to see these, these negotiations till the end. But uh, the prospect of follow-on negotiations and broader negotiations with the U.S. and the West uh, on other issues, you know, the Biden administration says they want a stronger and longer deal. You know, they want follow-on negotiations and other issues with Iran. I think with a Raisi at the helm uh, and you know, if he, you know, if he brings in his cabinet, you know, his foreign minister, these key portfolios, the, um, if he brings the forces that he's been associated with domestically, which are the most anti-diplomacy hardliners that people have been criticizing the JCPOA since 2015, who've been saying like Rouhani and Zarif are basically these traitors who sold out the country and they're like, they've been infiltrated by spies. If he brings those type of people to the, to the fore, that, nego- you know, I think the prospects were broader engagement will be greatly diminished. It's going to be more difficult. Like, you know, even during Ahmadinejad, you know, the negotiations we saw with, you know, Saeed Jalili at the helm then, you know, they were kind of long dragged out negotiations. They, they weren't really kind of productive. You know, many of the Western diplomats would complain that Jalili just kind of gave long sermons about like justice. And, you know, they didn't actually really have um, substantive negotiations or progress. Uh, and I think, but I think on the, but with that said, um, well, you know, the hardliners, if they're united in Iran and if they no longer worry about, you know, because, you know, one element of the kind of the opposition to Rouhani and Zarif within Iran from a lot of the security forces were basically that Rouhani and Zarif are basically these Gorbachev-like figures that, are, you know, if they preside over an opening to the West and if they get all the economic and political dividends of that, they could kind of topple the system from within or change, transform the system away from, you know, the kind of, a lot of these, in, the, the hardliners and kind of, you know, the power that they've had and kind of the Islamic Republic as we've known it. So I think if there, uh, if there's, if there's total consolidation of power by the hardliners, they're not going to worry about that, obviously. So maybe at that point, they would be willing to kind of on their own terms and with them getting all the political and economic dividends, and not their political rivals like Rouhani and Zarif, they might be willing to engage in some negotiations, um, but that remains to be seen. I think on the regional front, there's more reason to be optimistic that you know even Raisi and many of these conservatives in Iran that they support kind of uh, improving Iran's relations with, with neighbors and you know with Saudi Arabia that they voice support for for these ongoing talks that have started with between Saudi, Iran and Saudi Arabia to de-escalate their tensions. And I think you know under Raisi president presidency that would uh, 
there would be progress on those regional negotiations. Uh, I, I think additionally, even though what Sina said would, was pretty comprehensive, I, I think the one other silver lining is that um, in contrast to other candidates who um, I think like Alibov, who was very adamant that there shouldn't even be any negotiations um, until all sanctions are, are lifted. Um, I think the one silver lining is that if there is an agreement reached um, at the Vienna talks fully and honestly, um, I don't anticipate that Iran is going to um, renege on that agreement. Um, the administration has been pretty adamant um, that Iran keeps to its agreements. And even though the Rouhani administration is very hated, that general philosophy uh, has been agreed to across factions, um, that Iran should, in this respect, be better than America. And I think that's a positive. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the the concern with reneging is, is entirely on the other side now. I mean, we've already demonstrated it, right? There's this uh, clear example. And that, that's what, you know, I wonder if, uh, I wonder how much wherewithal there's going to be in Iran to to negotiate a follow-on deal or to make uh, to negotiate agreements on missiles or on regional kind of behavior. And I, you know, negotiating within the region is a different animal. I think you know, negotiating with the Saudis directly or or that sort of thing. But negotiating another deal with the United States that covers a broader kind of array of things after having experienced. Basically, a situation where, you know, for it would not be unjustifiable for the Iranian government to say the United States can't be relied on to to stick to its word. Uh, you know, I wonder how much actual interest or, or willingness there's going to be to kind of stick uh, your proverbial neck out, I guess, uh, you know, under that that supposition that the next. Donald Trump or President Tom Cotton or President uh, Hawley or whomever uh, can just tear it up and, and go back to nothing. Well, I think this is, you know, it's one of the tragedies of U.S.-Iran relations in the past several decades is that for most of the time, there's not been an alignment of leaders on both sides who are kind of willing to expend political capital and really pursue engagements and kind of try to improve relations. You know, you had, for example, the reformers, President Khatami, in the 90s, who made a lot of overtures, and then you know Bush put them put Iran in the axis of evil. Even actually, Rafsanjani earlier than that in the 90s gave America American oil companies oil contracts, uh, kind of helped release kind of hostages in Lebanon as part of like a kind of agreement with the H.W. Bush administration. But then ultimately, you had actually Bill Clinton in 1994 impose really severe economic sanctions on Iran and prevent those oil contracts from actually being uh, fulfilled. So and now you saw obviously with Obama and Rouhani, you saw for the first time there was this alignment of these kind of leaders on both sides who pursued diplomatic engagement. And you saw for the first time after decades, you know, huge, you know, massive diplomatic efforts and the nuclear deal was reached. You know, you had high level talks at the foreign minister level consistently, you know, Zarif and John Kerry became very close. And now again, we're faced with this scenario where, you know, Donald Trump aligned with Rouhani's second term. And then, you know, all prospects for engagement were gone. And now you have Biden. And Biden is actually someone who historically has tried to actually improve, you know, has supported diplomacy with Iran. And his team right now, I would argue, is a, is a pro-diplomacy team. You know, when you have 
you know, even like Tony Blinken, uh, Rob Malley is an Iran envoy, Jake Sullivan, you know, Bill Burns, a CIA director, Wendy Sherman in the State Department. These are these are not regime change people. These are not, you know, these they've they negotiated the JCPOA and they support diplomacy with Iran. But right now, you know, we have now hardliners coming to the power in Iran again. And it's actually very interesting, I think, important to emphasize how much the hardliners on both sides really echo each other and in some cases outright support each other. And you actually had figures like Elliot Abrams, you know, Trump's Iran envoy for like the last like several months of the Trump administration, you know, the infamous Elliot Abrams, the Iran-Contra convict, who in the 2017 presidential election, the last time Raisi was running, he wrote an op-ed for political where he straight up said that, you know, the, the U.S. should support Raisi or they should, the U.S. should want Raisi to win that election. Because for these kind of, you know, our hardliners here and the neocons and and these kind of hawkish forces in America, for them, you know, they don't, they want, they want the hardliners in power in Iran because it, it, it better enables them to isolate Iran, see through their policies, keep Iran as this perennial enemy for the U.S. and, you know, enact a lot of their other policies towards the Middle East. So, and you, you even see a lot of the kind of hardline pro-Israel groups like FDD, the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, they also have, have had this track record of saying the U.S. should not, you know, should kind of be on the same side as basically the hardliners. Or, you know, in the 2017 election, FDD also said that, you know, the U.S. should want Rouhani to lose. So, you unfortunately, you have these forces on both sides that have been committed to, you know, not allowing this relationship to improve. And right now, you know, we're at this point where on the Iranian side, these forces are gaining power again. Did we lose Seamus? Sorry. Um, no, Cena. Cena's um, audio has been going in and out for me. I, I heard maybe like half of that. Oh, um, no. I'm, I'm hoping that... It was fine for me, so hopefully... Okay, okay, hopefully. Hopefully um, the recording is okay. Okay, good. okay, so, yeah. Sorry, I was having internet issues earlier this morning, so I hope... No, it's fine, but recorded. just... Yeah, from what I heard, I don't think I have anything to add, so if you want to go to the next question, that's fine. Um, well, I was I was going to wrap it up. So if you want to say even just to echo something, uh, okay. just to kind of, you know, close it out. I think yeah, the hardliner argument, um, the fact that American and Iranian hardliners um, are, are so similar in this respect um, does depress me a great deal um, because going forward uh, to the 2024 primaries. I mean, the potential candidates are what, as you said, Tom Cotton, um, people like Mike Pompeo. Um, the great fear that I have is that there is going to be a situation in which, like the fact that there was someone like um, like uh, Biden and Rouhani or Obama and Rouhani, there is going to eventually be a situation wherein Raisi is president still, at least for a very brief amount of time, if he does win re-election, wherein there might be a Republican president who is even more hardline than Trump in this respect. Um, where, I mean, there was this, there was this big argument about um, whether or not Trump um, was someone who had brought America back from the brink of, of war with Iran um, because he had uh, aborted um, a retaliatory strike uh, against Iran multiple times. Um, 
But even so, he was the person who brought these tensions to the brink in the first place. So if there is a Republican president who has the ability to have foresight, who has the ability to make plans, um, I think there is a significant danger there, um, despite uh, maybe Raisi keeping to the Vienna talk agreements, if those are agreed to, um, even if the Raisi government was very in favor of the policy, that I think is a danger there. See, I knew we could get this to a, a even more depressing point and end the interview there. And that's it. That is the point where we are going to end the interview so we can keep with the theme of this podcast. And I thank you, Seamus, for doing that. Um, uh, so, Seamus, I, 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 I plugged, mentioned your I mentioned your Substack and seen I mentioned uh, NIAC, but do you guys have any, you know, any, anything else you want to, you know, direct people to, uh, places where you're writing or, or, uh, you know, other, other resources? Um, I would just, you know, the National Iranian American Councils is where I work. Um, if you're interested in, in these issues and other issues that affect Iranian Americans, uh, I encourage you to kind of follow us on Twitter and other social media. I also do a weekly digest called Iran Unfiltered, which, uh, you know, I track kind of news out of Iran, kind of based on Farsi sources. So if you want to continue kind of tracking political developments in Iran, uh, that'll be useful, for you, hopefully. Yeah. I also highly recommend following uh, Sina on Twitter. Um, oh, he, is ex- he is extremely uh, informative um, and, and gets stuff that I typically do miss. Um, but just in respect to um, myself, uh, the subsec will be uh, in the description. And um, you can also find me on Twitter at, uh, at Seamus underscore Malik. I highly recommend you follow Seamus. This has been a really uh, good discussion, I think. And uh, obviously the election, at least the first round, is coming up on Friday. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. Raisi probably will win. But if there's a runoff... Uh, we may have more to talk about. And certainly, uh, you know, I'd like to, uh, you know, like to have you guys both back on uh, down the road as as politics in Iran continue to be uh, so important to the, the region and, you know, to U.S. foreign policy in general. Uh, so thanks for being on the program. And, and definitely let's do this again sometime. It was a pleasure. For sure. Thanks for having us, Derek. All right, that'll do it for us this week. Uh, once again, I want to thank Sina Tusi uh, and Seamus Malikovsili uh, for coming on the program and taking us through uh, what looks like, uh, I think, a fairly monumental election, even if the outcome has sort of been predetermined, or maybe because the outcome has been predetermined, and that's a new thing to some extent uh, for the Iranian political system. So I know we like to talk in the West about how authoritarian and uh, undemocratic Iran is, but as I said, uh, you know, towards the end of the interview, at least uh, in the past, these elections have been competitive if they've been sort of contained within a, a, a certain bubble of accepted uh, ideology. And this this election feels much different than that. It's it's been feels like it's been arranged from the start. So that's that's an interesting development, and we'll see how it plays out. Uh, I also want to thank all of you, as always, for checking out the podcast. And uh, until next time, take care. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.